Good morning, everyone. Try it again. Good morning, everyone. So wake you guys up, huh? And uh, thank you, brother. Uh, it is great to be with you all this morning. Um, this church is dear to me. Uh, the brothers here are dear friends. And uh, I look out and see many of you and many of you I know. And we've uh, been together in different contexts, uh, particularly at LABTS. And we're going to get a lot of shameless plugs from, from LABTS today. And uh, a great, great blessing to many of us. And uh, so I'm delighted to be here. It will be 25 years, actually, that I have been, uh, will have been married to my wife on next week, by the way. So we are grateful for that. And uh, the five kids is why I look as tired as I do this morning. Um, but they are a great joy. Uh, my kids range from the ages of uh, 21 down to 12. So we're, we're, we're grateful. Um, let me just pray, you guys, before we begin our time, and uh, then we'll look together at God's word. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, for all of your grace in our life. Thank you for the privilege that we have to call upon you, Lord. We do so in the precious name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Lord, we owe everything to him. He is everything to us. And we praise you for the privilege we have to be your people. We gather, Lord, today not to hear the words of any man or any group of men, but to hear your word. And so we pray that you would gird up the loins of our minds and grant us the grace to think your thoughts after you, Lord. Um, we pray that you would help us to be attentive. We pray that you would remove any and all distractions and, Lord, cause us to um, think, um, to meditate, and to focus on you. Lord, this is a serious topic, and so we come with a sense of sobriety, Lord. Uh, many of us have suffered, many of us certainly are suffering, and many of us will suffer. So, Lord, we want a biblical perspective that we might honor you. So we commend and commit our time to you now, Lord, and just pray your blessings upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you all this morning. Um, when I received the invitation and saw the topic, I didn't quite know what to expect because this is such a serious topic, so I didn't know if it would be just 10 people here or, you know, 100 people here. And I am grateful to see as many of you all this morning. Suffering is a serious topic. It is something that we all experience um, but it isn't something necessarily we all enjoy talking about or are eager to talk about or discuss. Um, but that's exactly what we're going to do for our time together today. My aim in my two sessions is to build a case for the sovereignty of God over suffering. And with the hope that we can all walk away from our time together today with a renewed sense of faith in God's goodness which I believe will sustain us uh, as we and those we love suffer. Or if I can put it another way, I want to hold up before us today what I'm calling a big God theology of suffering uh, so that we can rest in the arms of our loving Father who only brings into the lives of his people that which is good for us and that which will bring him glory. And now this... 
topic of suffering. And when we think about suffering, all we're thinking about is just simply um, when we have to submit to or when we're forced to endure something unpleasant. That really is a broad definition of suffering. It can go from something just not feeling well to something as the loss of a loved one. There's a broad range of suffering, and uh, we want to talk about all of it. It's just simply enduring pain and enduring distress. But it's something that touches us all deeply. It touches me deeply. Um, Now, I don't think that I have personally suffered any more than anybody else. We always have to be careful not to compare our sufferings with other people. Um, I don't think, though, that as I think about other people in my life that I have suffered all that much I have. I'll share some of that as we go through. But as a pastor, I have both the pain and the privilege to walk alongside of people who suffer regularly. Um, just in preparing for our time together, I just want to share... Uh, a situation that I'm walking with the family uh, with in our church. Um, it's a dear couple, and they're a young couple. They're in their early 30s, and just this last year, they have suffered in ways that are unimaginable. Um, the wife, um, she is a sibling. She has four siblings left now. Uh, two of her brothers uh, over the last 10 years have died. One uh, was hit by a car on the freeway uh, while he was changing a tire. Uh, the other of her brother had special needs. He was an adult and uh, had a seizure and died. So this family had already known their share of tragedy. But on last year, the end of last year, her youngest brother, who was 29 years old, was gunned down in broad daylight on the 91 freeway. Uh, just driving home from work. He works with special needs kids. He was on his way home and uh, randomly, as it were, and I say randomly, uh, he was gunned down um, and murdered. And the family rushed to the hospital and I got a call from there. And uh, for those of us who are pastors, those are the kind of phone calls that you do not want to receive. And so I went to the hospital to be with the family and they were there they were and he died in route uh, to the hospital, and uh, as you can imagine, they were devastated. Um, shortly after his funeral, I attended his funeral. His mother uh, and father both were there, but his mother uh, took the news so devastatingly, as you could imagine, she took sick, and shortly after uh, the funeral, she went into the hospital and never recovered. Uh, she stayed in the hospital for about two and a half months, and then she died. And so you just got to think about this, right? They lose their son. Uh, This member of our church lost her brother and her mother within the span of two months. And I'm not making this up. The week after her mother died, her husband received a phone call to go to his parents' house. And he went to his parents' house only to find out that his father murdered his mother. Some of you may have heard about this on the news that happened in Compton. Now, all of this, loved ones, happened within a span of three months. This dear couple uh, at our church, uh, the wife lost a brother and a mother, and then her husband lost his mother and his father because his father will spend the rest of his life in jail. 
Now, if you don't have a big God theology, friends, there's no way through that. There's just no imaginable way through that level of suffering. Even for the most mature Christian, if you don't have a sovereign God, how do you get through something like that? And I don't share that to suggest that somehow or another, you know, to make myself like I'm involved in all of this suffering, but I just share that with you all uh, to remind us that these things happen. Some of you, if you were to be able to share your story, have experienced things like this. And so we come this morning really desiring and wanting to know what does the Bible have to say about these issues. And so what I'm going to do this morning in this first section is I'm going to, I'm going to make five statements, five statements about suffering and God's sovereignty that I believe are necessary pillars to a solid understanding of suffering according to the Bible. And for my time this morning in this session, this is going to be more lecturing than it is preaching because uh, I want to be very careful about what I say. I really want to plant these pillars deep down into our minds. I, I think this will hold up a, a, a house that we'll seek to build later on in our second session to, to talk more experientially about how to respond to suffering that God allows into our lives. But these are our pillar statements, five of them, about suffering from the Bible and God's sovereignty. Okay, so you're taking notes, here we go. Number one, this is the first pillar statement, and it is this. Suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Let me say that one more time so you can write that down. Suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Now, that's not a profound statement, but it's a necessary statement to start with because if we don't have this basic truth, human suffering will always seem strange to us. We'll inevitably be trapped in a philosophical conundrum about God's goodness, God's power, and the problem of evil if we don't start here that God has ordained that suffering be a part or at least a consequence of living in a fallen world. We need to start here that God is a sovereign God and he created a moral universe with built-in consequences of both for both obedience and disobedience. And if we can start there, then we'll have our feet firmly planted in the soil of biblical truth as it relates to suffering. And I want to just take us to a few texts to underscore this. So I trust you guys have your Bible. So join me in Genesis chapter one. This is territory that I'm sure we're already familiar with, but it's worth underscoring to get our feet here as we move out on the other four pillar statements. Obviously, Genesis chapter one is the recording of God creating. We know this, that God created ex nihilo out of nothing. There was nothing, and God created all things that exist. If we start even in verse 31, uh, which we have 31 verses of how God created, and in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, we read these words, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And very good means very good. There was nothing wrong with the creation of God. All things were good. There was no pain. There was no disease. There was no sin. Everything was very good. There was no suffering. So we can say this, God did not create suffering in his original creation. But if you allow your eyes to move to chapter 2, 
verse 15, we move from the reality that God created everything and everything was very good, no suffering. What we have in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, is the promise of suffering if, in fact, there is disobedience. God says this, or the text says this in Genesis 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden uh, to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, from, the tree of any, uh, the, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely what? Die. That's the promise of suffering right there. You see that? That's the promise of suffering. It's not actualized, but it's the promise of suffering if, in fact, the man and the woman choose to disobey God. So it's a promise that there will be consequences if, in fact, the man and the woman would not trust in their good God and disobey him. So we start from everything is very good to the promise of the potential of suffering because of disobedience. And then we have the reality of that suffering entering into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Turn there, Genesis chapter 3. You guys know the story. We have it recorded for us. The tempter comes and tempts Eve, and Eve gives in to that temptation. Eve then in turn tempts Adam, and Adam eats of the tree of good and knowledge. And as a result of that, they die. And we have these recorded words for us in verse 14 of chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of uh, about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Suffering now becomes a reality. You guys get that? Suffering is now not just a promise for disobedience. Suffering is now the consequence of the disobedience, and it is the reality of the world. God cursed the world because of the disobedience. Pain and sin and sickness and sorrow and disease now becomes actualized in the creation of God. Because of the disobedience, the world has now fallen. That which God created, which was very, very good, is now not good because God ordained that it would be thus as a consequence of moral disobedience of man. And then when you go to Genesis chapter 4, I'll just make a comment here. If you begin to read in Genesis chapter 4, you'll just see that now that suffering has become a reality, it spreads to all mankind. It's just a litany of lists of the suffering that comes about as a consequence of man's disobedience. It now is the experience of all mankind, this suffering. As I said, death and disease becomes part and partial 
for mankind. And so it explains to us then, in some senses, where suffering comes from. It wasn't something that caught God off guard. It wasn't something that surprised God. God promised that this would be the case as a consequence of man's sin. Romans chapter 5, and I think you all know that well, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Suffering come into the world as a consequence of the sin of man. And it is our portion. So in Job chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, you have to turn there, Eliphaz, who is one of Job's counselors, who was applying a truth incorrectly still, he spoke the truth when he said this, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. He, he, he's saying that, 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 that trouble and suffering, it, it doesn't just come out of anywhere, but, but it comes as a result of what man does. Now, he's applying it incorrectly to Job, but what he says is, in fact, true. Uh, suffering is not some equal force that just came out of nowhere. It came into the world. It is in our world. It is our corporate experience as human beings because of our disobedience, and God ordained it to be so. That's the first pillar. We got to get that into our minds. It starts there. And it must be woven into the fabric of our Christian theology, because if not, we'll stumble every time suffering comes into our existence or our personal experience, as if something strange is happening. And it ought not to be that in our thinking. It is not strange that suffering is a part of our world if we, in fact, believe what Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 teaches us. That it is as a consequence of our disobedience. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two. Mark this down. Suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Let me have you, and we're turning in a number of places in our Bibles. Let me just have you turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Paul comes to Romans chapter 11. It's at the heels, obviously, of all of the other 10 chapters where he has been unfolding for us just the the beauty and the glory of of, of the gospel of God and how God has brought salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul begins to unfold some of the mystery of the dynamic of the richness of God's sovereign salvation, particularly in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11. And and there is a depth there that that Paul enters into explaining how could it be that salvation was promised to the Jews and, 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 and Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. But when he came, the Jews rejected him. But in their rejection, God in his sovereignty used the rejection of the Jews of the Messiah to to graft in Gentiles who 
were never promised uh, salvation. So they get in and are drafted into the holy root. But as a result of their grafting into the holy root, their grafting in would then make the Jews jealous and they would then in turn come back. And it's just this beautiful mystery of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And as Paul comes to the close of that, he is just stymied by the mind of God. He is is stymied by the profundity of who God is. And he says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. And then he makes this profound statement. And I just want you to underscore this in your Bible if it isn't underscored in your Bible because this is, this is a big God theology statement. This is a statement that you should come back to over and over again and again. Verse 36, where Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And you ought to say together, Amen. I call this this the sovereign triangle. And notice what Paul is saying. And it goes beyond simply salvation. He's applying the bigness of God and his sovereignty to the salvation that he just described. And he is saying this, that from him, that's the top, that's the peak, from God and through God and to God are all things. Can you visualize that in your mind? Can you visualize that triangle from God, through God and to God are all things. In other words, there is nothing that is outside of that triangle. Nothing is outside of that. Ultimately, and God uses secondary means, and we'll talk about that, I think, in one of your uh, uh, breakout sessions about evil and how God can, 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 can still be uh, superintending and sovereign over evil, but not necessarily be the cause of evil because he uses concurrence and secondary means. But still, having said that, though, even evil, even suffering, even pain, even that which causes us difficulties in our lives is from him and through him and to him is the idea. Nothing, friends, is outside of God's ultimate sovereign control. Whatever the category, dear friends, whatever the category, and we'll see some of this as we work our way through the day, whatever the category, whatever the the agency that the suffering comes into our lives or comes into the world or comes into your experience or the experience of someone you care about isn't outside of the sovereign control of God. You think about satanic suffering, and we all understand that Satan is the instrument of so much suffering in this world. But even Satan himself is under the sovereign control of God. We read about that, and we'll turn to that on a couple of occasions in our time together in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Satan could do nothing to Job apart from the sovereign permission of God. That ought to give us great encouragement, by the way. Satan is not an equal power. We don't believe in in dualism. There aren't two dueling equal powers in our universe. No, Satan is underneath. I can't remember who said it this way, but uh, they said it this way, that that Satan is God, Satan. And he is. Natural suffering, right? Suffering that comes to us through nature, storms and, and, and things like that, and disease and and hurricanes, 
Those are under the sovereignty of God. Just read the Psalms, the Psalm 78, Psalm 148 teaches over and over and again and again that God is the God of all weather. God is the God of all nature. Nothing happens apart from his sovereignty. Providential suffering. What I mean by providential suffering is just suffering that comes to us just by virtue of accidents. What we would say just our accident, things that just happen to us. But even those are under the sovereign rule of God, right? The dice are cast by the hand of man, but its outcome is of the Lord, Proverbs sixteen thirty three says. So even something like what dice do when you roll them and they land are under the sovereignty of God. That which seems like an accident. It's no accident when that car careens off the curb and hits the family by the side of the road, we say that was an accident. And yes, in some senses it was, but the Bible would say that even that was under the ultimate control of Almighty God. Judicial suffering, that, that which God, when he judges individuals, so Genesis chapter 6 and, and all over our Bible, that, 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 that we know that's from God when God chooses to judge and bring suffering because of disobedience. Disciplinary suffering, we'll talk about that a bit later. What God does, not punishing his children, but bringing his children to a greater sense of holiness and righteousness out of Hebrews chapter 12. That's under the good hand of God. Consequential suffering, meaning the kind of suffering that just simply is, is sowing and reaping. That's God doing that. Whatsoever man soweth, he shall also reap. God built that into the universe. Consequences. Vicarious suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ is established by God. Malicious suffering, when, when evil people do evil things to bring pain into our lives, is underneath God. Proverbs 16.4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. What a profound statement. It means this, that God in his ultimate sovereignty made even the wicked who do evil and cause suffering. It's under the hand of God. All suffering, whatever the agency is, is under the hand of God. In the book of Lamentations, which is the epilogue to the book of Jeremiah, it speaks of the reality even of national, national and community suffering for Israel. And in, and in chapter 3, verses 37 and 38, it says this, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And those are the kind of passages that make us feel a little uncomfortable. And the two words that, 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 that are used in the Hebrew are, are tov, which is for good, and ra, which is the word for evil. It has a range, a lexical range, but it is that word. It could be translated this way. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil go forth? In other words, affirming that God is ultimately sovereign over good and evil, ultimately without ever being accused of doing evil. He is still yet sovereign over it. And in the book of Job, we know it well, do we not, which deals with the personal suffering. After suffering, Job, that is, the loss of his livelihood, the loss of his servants, the loss of his children, he says in 
Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He saw God's sovereign hand over all of his losses. He saw God's hand even over his suffering. We read what Satan was doing, but in, in Job's understanding of God, in his big God theology, he said God gave and God took away. He saw God's hand in his suffering. The question is, do we have this same kind of big God theology? Suffering, dear friends, isn't random or guided, as I said, by some dualistic force competing with God. It is God's mighty hand that is over it all. Pillar statement number three. So we have, first of all, suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Secondly, suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. And then thirdly, suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. Now, you got to swallow hard on that one. I recognize that. I, I wrote it to try to be a bit provocative to get us to think about this. Let me say it one more time. Suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. Now, often we hear Christians use the language of permission when it comes to our pain and suffering. And I'm, I'm not suggesting or saying that that is altogether wrong. God does permit suffering, right? We read about that in Job. He permitted Satan to have at Job. But I think we're more comfortable with that language of permission because, at least on the surface, it seems to get God off the hook while still maintaining his sovereignty. In other words, we think about it this way, that God permits the suffering, but it's not his idea. That there's somebody behind it. In other words, somebody, something other than God or someone other than God. It was their idea and God just says, okay, I'll permit it to happen and then I'll superintend it for good. But that really doesn't get to the heart of the issue, does it? Because what is that thing behind it? If God gives permission, is there something behind God that is over God, that is sovereign over God that he then just basically permits it and then reacts to it. And I want to suggest to you that, that, that in the scripture, God is not a reactor. He is the primary actor in everything, including our suffering. And so I want us just to look at uh, Job for a minute or two. So let's turn there in our Bibles. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Is it true that God's sovereignty not only permits suffering, but also intends it, means it, designs it, that he is even behind the permission of it? So in Job, and I know you guys are very familiar with the story of Job. Now let me just remind us of what is taking place here, so I want to Go back up to verse 6. Now there was a day, Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also 
came among them. We would understand the sons of God to be angels. We don't know the exact time this was, but obviously here Job is already uh, on the earth. The sons of God comes. The angels are before the Lord. And Satan, who is the accuser, who is the adversary, is also among them. Verse 7 says, the Lord said to Satan... And so again, I just want you to note this, that who initiates the conversation? The Lord does. Yahweh does. Satan is there. Yahweh initiates the conversation. Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh. I'm just using Yahweh for Lord in all caps. It's his covenant name. and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around it. And that's the end of the statement. And then verse 8 says, and then Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? And you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? All of the tragedy, one after another, after another, after another. My point here is simply to point out to us, particularly in verse 8, it is God who said, have you considered my servant Job? You guys catch that? It is not Satan who asked, could he have at Job? But it is God who brings Job into the conversation. This, this, this whole process of the suffering of Job that we're so familiar about that we see happening at the hands of Satan is initiated, is designed by, is meant by God to do something. That's the point that I want to bring out that we see. Don't miss that, dear friends. That Satan is not sovereign in what's going on here. Satan did not initiate what's going on here. God did. And Job understood that. Job understood it so that he could say the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood it. In verse 10 of chapter 2, but he said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You could translate it, not accept evil. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You guys understand what he's saying there? He is saying that all of the suffering that I have gone through, that I now attribute to God, and the testimony of Scripture is, in him actually saying that he did not sin with his lips. It was not sin for Job to say that what he had just gone through, the loss of his resources, the loss of his family, the loss of his health, for him to say that comes from God, that is not sin. Because he has a big God theology that can say even my suffering 
that I'll put under the sovereignty of God. Now I'm hoping I'm raising all kinds of questions in your minds right now, you guys. That's why we have a panel that will try to answer those questions. But again, you guys, I just want to stick these theological pillars in our brains so that as we have the discussion about experiential suffering, we somehow or another don't look outside of God to explain it. But that we realize that the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a big God and suffering is not a problem for him. And that he is as good and as powerful when we suffer as he is when we don't suffer. And that suffering is a part of his plan, loved ones. And that he can be trusted in the midst of our suffering and our pain. I want to take you just to underscore this another, to another text. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. It's the climax to the long portion of the book of Genesis where we have the account of Joseph. You all are familiar with the story. His brothers hated him. His brothers intended and plotted and planned to kill him. And having been rescued by one of his brothers, they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery, which catapulted him into a life of tremendous suffering but God was in it all. It had led to him actually being raised up in Egypt, second into com in command behind Pharaoh. And in the providence and sovereignty of God, he gets reunited back with his brothers. And as his brothers come to him, fearing that he is going to exact retribution against them, now that their father is dead, they are terrified of Joseph. And we have these wonderful words. If you don't have this underscored in your Bible, I would highlight it underscored it. I would put a dog ear in my Bible or whatever you need to do to make sure you don't forget that Genesis 50 verse 20 is in your Bible. And it reads this way, Genesis 50, 20. This is Joseph. Uh, back up to verse 19. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And Joseph understood in this statement, he's saying he understood that his experience of being sold into slavery, which led to deep suffering as not being just simply permitted by God. You guys got to see the language. He isn't just saying that I know that God permitted you guys to do this. But he is saying, and that's why in, in, in the statement I put, that God does not only permit suffering in his sovereignty, but he means it. That's what Joseph is saying. That in the same way that, that, that as my brothers plotted and planned and designed this evil against me, God, you meant it. You planned it. You purposed it. You designed it. That's what he's saying. He's, seeing, he's saying and seeing over, even behind and even above the intentions and the designs of evil of his brother, he's seeing God at work. God meant it. 
He meant it. He planned it. That's what the word kashav in, in Hebrew means, the meant, to plan, to devise. That's what he's saying. God meant it, he planned it, and even though it was executed by the evil intentions of his brothers, Joseph saw God not as a permissive responder, but as an active initiator in his sufferings. Let me just underscore it by, you turn back to chapter 45, still in Genesis, where we read in verse 5, Joseph speaking, He says to them there, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. In other words, if I could translate it this way, don't be be downcast, don't be grieved, don't be angry with yourself because you caused my suffering. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, he says this, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great Deliverance. He has the same perspective of his suffering that Job had. He sees God hand in it. He sees God sovereign over it. Dear friends, this is so important for us when it comes to understanding meaning and purpose in our suffering. And of course, we don't always know exactly what it is or we can't see it. We see through a mirror dimly in our experience, but the Bible teaches us. That suffering, as painful as it can be, is in fact meaningful. And it's meaningful because God has designed it to be purposeful in our lives. Statement number four. Statement number four. And I hope you can see, I think that there's a logical building of these pillar statements. Statement number four. Suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for his glory And for our good. Suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and our good. If I were to survey this room and and just ask the question, how many of you guys want to suffer? Let me just get a show of hands. We had one brother back there that put his hand up. All right, so we're going to give him a thermometer and test for him having a, you know, a fever right now. And let's just be honest, right? The truth be told, if you guys can go through the rest of your life without suffering, how many of you guys would choose to go through the rest of your life without suffering? Right? Yeah, let's just be honest, right? Don't try to be super Christian, you guys. It's just, just, let's just be honest, right? Nobody likes pain. If you like pain, actually, you need therapy. Right? None of us would sign up for the line of suffering. Right? By definition, we don't like it. By definition, we don't like pain. By definition, we don't like heartache. It's not meant to be liked. I'm not suggesting that we should. Don't, don't, don't take me to be saying that in any way, shape, or form, guys and ladies. I'm just suggesting that it's, it's underneath the sovereignty of God. Right? And the reason that we don't sign up is because of our experiential perspective. Because we don't like pain. It doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. But here's a question. If pain were good, and then I were to ask the question, how many of us would raise our hand? Now, when I say if pain were good, I don't mean that it's good in the fact that it feels good. Hmm? 
Okay, that's where I'm going towards, brother. Right? But if pain is good in its design and good in its purpose, it might change our perspective. Right? If it's good in its design and its purpose, then we might be willing to endure it because our perspective is different because of the outcome. So I just, just as an example, right? I, I, I'm, I might be more inclined to endure the pain of chemotherapy if I'm ensured that the chemotherapy are going to kill the cancer cells in my body that would otherwise kill me. You guys understand. Now, I wouldn't just sign up to say, hey, does anybody want chemotherapy? Right? And just went and got chemotherapy for no apparent reason and just suffered the pain of chemotherapy. But if I know that the design of chemotherapy, and it is painful. I know those who have gone through chemotherapy. It is painful. But that pain I can endure and even, dare I say, welcome into my life because of the design of the pain and the purpose of the pain and what it's going to do in my life. Does that make sense? And I'm suggesting that when these pillars take shape in our minds and in our hearts, they will transform our personal experience with suffering. And so we will be able to, as James chapter 1 tells us, to count it all joy. Not because I'm about to experience suffering, but because I know what suffering under the sovereignty of God is actually going to do in my life. That the cancer cells of sin are going to be destroyed and killed in my life. And so I will not only endure but also welcome the pain that my sovereign, good, powerful doctor chooses to sin and dare I say allow and permit into my life. And that's what God does is Suffering for, for us, particularly as believers, is part of his sovereign plan, part of his plan for his own glory and for our own good. You would suspect that I would go before I sat down to Romans chapter 8, right? And so turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'll just remind us what we already know to be truth. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, it's a glorious chapter. I know for maybe some of you, like me, it, may, it might be my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. And, and it is in the context of actually suffering, particularly the second half of it. It is about suffering and how to endure suffering. Let me just set that before us. Uh, in verse 16, the Spirit that has been poured out to us, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we do what? We suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's about suffering and how we endure our suffering 
dear brothers and sisters and friends. And in Romans 28, it's, it's kind of the climax of it in some sense, or at least the heartbeat of it that, that drives how we, in fact, can endure suffering. And Paul writes for us, and we know, I hope you know, friends, I hope you know this. I hope if you didn't know it, you will leave here today. If you don't know anything else, haven't learned nothing else but this, that this will be driven into your heart. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's God's sovereignty, dear friends. This is the perspective that we all should have. That God is working every single thing together. Our suffering, our pain, our heartache, our afflictions. No matter what the channel or the instrument by which they come into our lives. God is sovereignly at work using it for your good. For your good. Now it's helpful to understand what that good is. And the good is, he tells us in the next verses. That's why I don't stop reading at verse 28. What's the good? What's the purpose by which in, that God is doing? And we'll talk more about that in our, our second session this afternoon. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the good. That's the good, dear friends. That's the good. That's what God is always aiming at in your life. With every ounce of pain, every ounce of suffering, every affliction, every heartache that you endure in this life, you can rest assured this is what God is doing and it is good for you. That you would be conformed into the image of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And there is, dear friend, dear brother and sister, there is no greater good in the universe than that. To be like in thought, word, and indeed Jesus Christ. There is no greater good. And, and, and if we understand that, then, loved ones, there is no amount of pain then that we ought not be willing to endure if, in fact, that will make me like Jesus Christ. Oh, to be like Christ, loved ones. That Christ laid hold of us that we in turn may lay hold of him and be like him. Is that not what all of this is about? That, 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 that God loved his son so much that he would give to him a redeemed humanity that will be like him forever and ever and ever in glory. And we are a part of that if, in fact, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That is your raison d'etre. That is your reason for existence, to be like Jesus. And in God's infinite love and wisdom and knowledge and understanding, he uses and has ordained that suffering would be one of the means by which he will bring that about. So the, I love the psalmist said this. This is such the perspective that I want for my life. I, I would trust and hope that you would want it for your life. In Psalm 119, 71, 
it is good for me that I was afflicted. Man, is that maturity or what? I, I, I'm not there yet, at least completely experientially. I want to be there. I can teach it, but living it is something altogether different, right? He says it was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Man. The Bible-believing Christian makes the connection between their own suffering and God's own sovereignty. Let me wrap up this point this way, and we have one more to go, and we'll be done. We start from God's character. This is important, dear friends. We start from God's character and work our way down and then work our way back up. Right? You start there. You don't start with your own experience. Because if you start with your own experience, you're in trouble. But if you start with the character of God, if you start with the love of God, if you start with the goodness of God, if you start with the wisdom of God and then deal with your pain that way and work your way back up, I guarantee you by the help of the grace of God and the spirit of God and the word of God, you will work your way back up in praise and honor and worship. And remember for myself that, uh, and it's eight years ago now, and I sat in a doctor's office. Um, having had a biopsy on my prostate in 44 years of age, which is really young. And uh, it's interesting, the doctor told me and my wife to go into his office and he would be there in a second. And so my folder with the results of my, my biopsy was sitting on his desk. And yes, I opened it up before he got there. Wouldn't you have? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to see what the results are. Now, I couldn't read the results. It was a bunch of graphs and wavy, but I had a sneaky suspicion that it wasn't good. And sure enough, when the doctor came in, it wasn't good. I'm 44 years old, and I'm diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so at that moment, dear friends, what do you do? Some of you sitting here, you've heard that, or you've sat with your mom or your dad or your friend or your brother or your neighbor, and you've heard that, right? You've gone into your boss's office only to receive that pink slip. You got that phone call or that email. What do you do at that moment? If you start off with the pain, this will be very, very hard. But if you start with a good, powerful, sovereign God, who is not thrown off by suffering, you can make it. And so can I. For from him and through him and to him are all things. One last pillar, and I'll take my seat. One last pillar. Let me just review them. Pillar number one, Suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. Pillar number two, suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Pillar number three, suffering is not only permitted by God, but is also meant by God. Pillar number four, suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and our good. And then pillar number five, suffering suffered death in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ.
Now I worked really hard at writing that. I was hoping for at least one amen. So I'll say it one more time. Suffering suffered death in the suffering and death of Jesus. And you say, amen. Amen. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death and took away the curse of God on the cross. Amen. That, that, that suffering for the believer is not eternal, but it is only temporal. That it has been defanged. That the bite and the sting of it has been taken away. That the evil intentions of Satan and malicious individuals cannot harm our soul. And that which they perpetrate on us builds in us even a greater capacity that we'll see later on for glorifying God and experiencing his pleasures forever. Loved ones, the cross makes sense of our suffering. It's the cross of Christ, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that, that we can cling to that will help us endure whatever it is that we're going through. And I just want to end by reading a couple of passages and, and a wonderful song, and then I will, in fact, take my seat. Isaiah 53. You know it well. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I'll stop there. He has taken it all away, loved ones, so that we don't have to endure suffering throughout eternity. He did that on the cross, not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. He bore our suffering on the tree as our substitute. 
that which we deserve was given to him by sovereign grace, by his Father and our Father. So that all that is caused our suffering, which is in fact our sin, and we go back to where we started, our sin, by one man's sin, suffering came into this world. By one man's act of obedience, suffering will be no more. And so if we run from the beginning of the book, dear friends, to the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 21, we find these marvelous words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the Holy Spirit, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things will have passed away. He will make all things new by sovereign grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together. The beginning of this morning, Lord, what better place to be than to be in your presence. Oh, God, we pray that you would minister your word to us and bless us. That even in the mystery of your providence that brings suffering into our lives. That we can say with William Copper, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And, oh God, please make it plain. Lord, make it plain for us today. Help us to understand our suffering according to the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say together, amen? Amen, amen. and God bless you.